This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello everyone. You're listening to Speaking of Asia. I'm Ravi Velour. In this podcast, I speak to the newly appointed president and CEO of Asia Society, Dr. Kang Kyung-hwa. Dr. Kang is from South Korea and she was the first woman to be appointed foreign minister of her country. She served in the government of President Moon Jae-in between 2017 and 2021. Dr. Kang was educated in South Korea and the United States. She's worked as a bureaucrat in the foreign ministry and served as a diplomat abroad. She's also worked at the United Nations at senior levels. Thank you for coming and speaking with Asia, Dr. Kang. Oh, my pleasure, Mr. Velour. Oh, please call me Ravi. <laughs> Ravi. It's an interesting time to be taking up this job. And I understand that uh, it is going to be New York-based. Mm-hmm. Asian society is so much about Asia mm-hmm. and the United States mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Where would you place the U.S. and Asia today? Well, I think the center of gravity of global affairs, politics, economics, growth, it's surely moving to Asia. So I think the weight of Asia in the global scheme of things is growing heavier and heavier and heavier. That, of course, is reflected in the relationship between the United States and the kind of relationship that it has with Asia. And I have to say that is not, that is a very diverse scene. Uh, the U.S. relationship with China, U.S. relationship with India, security allies, Korea, Japan, Australia, so the Asia is a very diverse landscape, and I think U.S. relationship with Asia, so therefore cannot be lumped in together as a as a singular scene. And I think Asia society's role is not only bring that relation the the many relationship that the United States has uh, closer, but also to reflect that diversity in the work that Asia society does. Because I see the culture, you know, the policy pillar. If you look at our home website. China. Understandably so, because I think U.S. politicians, U.S. businessmen, the American public is very interested in China. Uh, And and I think the work reflects that. But I think Asia society's work is to bring the many other aspects of Asia. Of course, China is very important, but there is, you know, the ASEAN, the 10 countries. Australia, and of course, more closer to the Northeast Asia, Korea and China, Korea and Japan. So I, I want the American, I hope the American public through Asia society's lens, works, tools, will be able to become, develop a deeper appreciation of, and I always say with the key partners in Asia. And these key partners, aside from China, and the treaty partners you listed, which should actually also include the Philippines, I suppose. What are the other big countries that... uh, uh, Of course, India is very important. I also think we... Frankly, I don't know if Asia Asia society has a definition of the geographical parameters of Asia. I'll have to look into that. Mm. But I think we've traditionally kept our horizon to the southern part of Asia. The northern part of Central Asia, I think, is very important. And I think if you look at the grand chessboard, as Mr. Brzezinski 
called it, Central Asia is a key part of this landscape. And so I would like to bring some attention to that part of Asia in our work. Um, you know, I'll have to think, but I also have to, I also have to be mindful of the interest of the trustees because I am accountable to the board of trustees and they have their interest should be reflected in the work that we do. Uh, so I would be trustful to that, but also be suggestive and leading in, in new focus areas where Asia society should be engaged. And I think Central Asia is one of them. Dr. Khan, do you see American interest in Asia holding, you know, with all the debt levels that they have, the deficit and everything else? There is speculation that the simply, you know, that the Americans are simply overextended and that they may not be able to sustain this expensive global presence in the way they've done so since World War II. What do you think? Certainly they are overextended, especially now two wars to somehow steer toward peace. But I don't think the interest level has declined, but the resources, even the most, the best resourced, mightiest countries have limited attention spans because the decision making is such that in the end, it, it's all go to the top level and the top level has limited time and attention span. So I don't think the interest has waned. I think there's a great deal of initiatives that have been presented towards this region, Indo-Pacific, for example, both politically and economically. So there is that, but because of this overstretchedness, the follow-up in bringing depth to these engagements uh, has been a little shallow, I must say. Mm -hmm. And that's been manifesting already? Well, you know, for example, I think on the geopolitical security side, the Korean Peninsula. I mean, North Korea is suddenly back in the news because of these very threatening provocations. Um, and that has uh, certainly uh, triggered some concern, interest from the Americans at the top level. Um, but you know, I think prior to this, there has, from my point of view, and I'm, not, I'm only watching the news, I don't know what's going on in the inside, that the level of serious engagement of the North Korea file has been, it's been not as strong as what I, I think should have been. And it's only after these terrible provocations these, you know, that suddenly you have interest and you have Mr. Sullivan, you know, making this point specifically to the Chinese counterpart in the Bangkok Diet, which, I, by the way, was, I think, was an excellent occasion. Right. I'll come back to the Korean Peninsula in a, in a moment. But let me just ask you, I suppose it's not fair for me to ask you to speculate about a Trump return. Nevertheless, let me ask you, whether you think American commitment to Asia will survive any change of government in Washington? Big question. Big question all around <laughs> on the outcome of the elections, because it would be so consequential, not, not just for Asia, but for the whole world. So as foreign minister and now as Asia Society president, I don't think it's, we can hypothesize, we can think of scenarios but at the end, we will have to deal with the consequences. And I think dealing with the consequences means we go back to what was the first era. Lots of uncertainties, lots of uh, volatility. And how would that in 
a possible second term translate into concrete policy initiatives is, I think, what lots of countries are trying to work through at this point, understandably, so that should that materialize, I think countries would be better prepared in a way. I mean, you were foreign minister and you had yes. to handle some of those tricky moments yourself. Yes. I'm aware of that. I was going to ask you about it a bit later, but does it bother you already? I think, you know, I think that what's coming out of the campaign, for example, 60% tariff on Chinese imports is concerning because that will be have huge repercussions for not just the relations, bilateral uh, trade relations, but the, for the whole global economy. So, yes. Things uh, that are being said on the campaign train are concerning. And I think the hope is that once in, as you know, campaigners typically do very you know, provocative statements during the campaign, but once in a position of responsibility, it tends to tone down. You, you, you go through the reality, you go through the, the possible consequences of these policies, and then you make their decision. And I think there, that there is that, that opportunity of engagement from the outside world during the transition period. So we, we have to watch what's coming out of the campaign message and being prepared to work with, with the transition team uh, on some of these issues that will be hugely disruptive. Because you know that uh, this time, if Mr. Trump comes back, he's going to come back as an experienced pre- president. Yep. And he'd be fully aware that in his first term, maybe some officials didn't fully carry out what he'd intended, mm-hmm. you know, because they thought, they were more mature. They saw things in a broader perspective and slowed things down. But this time, he'd know exactly how to fix uh, and get what he wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I want. I don't want to go into that level of hypothetical <laughs> hypotheticals. But you would also have have conservative thinkers yeah. more systematically engaged. I should think. Interesting, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Kam, you you spoke about the U.S.-China relationship, mm-hmm. and you said that. It occupied something like 90% of uh, issue society attention, mm-hmm. you know, in the last couple of years. But where do you see that relationship today? There have been a few meetings now. There's been a summit in California, and you mentioned Blinken mm-hmm. meeting Wang Yi. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that uh, relationship today? Well, since I left the position of foreign minister, what I could read in the headlines was continued heightening of the tension, competition. But what I see in the more recent months, in the, the summit and the strategic dialogue that seems to be happening between the two sides, and Bangkok was a clear sign of that, I think both sides are trying to temper the heat and trying to manage the competition. Yes, the competition is there. It will probably increase. But I think you know both sides finding a way to discuss the differences and then manage the tensions from getting out of hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could I bring you a little closer to home? Mm-hmm. How is South Korea's relationship with the United States moving lately? I think the current government has really gone in that direction. And not that the previous government had been any less committed to the U.S.-Korea alliance. I think our the Republic of Korea's commitment to the alliance is uh, remains very steady regardless of 
governments. And I think, but we also, the previous government tried to also, you know, manage the other important relationships that we have, for example, with China. We had a very difficult time with China after the that, that, that deployment. Uh, and so it was a difficult time, but we managed to overcome the differences over ta- that and get the comprehensive partnership going. South Korea spent more than $10 billion on uh, Camp Humphrey. Mm-hmm. And I yes. think your defense budget, if I'm not mistaken, is more than 2% yes. of GDP. Uh-huh. How would you describe the outlook on the United States? What would it be, you know, to, to paraphrase in Arabic sayings like, trust in Uncle Sam, but don't forget to tie your camels kind of situation? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is in Seoul today? Well, I think. Speaking of Camp Humphrey, that was built all on our budget. And still, the Trump administration, when we were renegotiating the special measures agreement where we discussed cost sharing of the the stationing of the troops there, that was one of the most difficult negotiations because what was requested by Mr. Trump was not just reachable under our legislative agenda. But we were not able to come to an agreement when he was in office. We were able to come to an agreement with the same package that we offered as soon as uh, Mr. Biden came in. Do we expect similar demands that we cannot meet when Mr. Trump should come in? Possible. But I think we will be prepared for the next time. But I think Korea is a security ally for sure, but also a country that is very capable trusted around the globe with no ulterior political motives. So I think Korea has a unique place to be a constructive player in in tempering down the the geopolitical tension in this part of the world and elsewhere. We talked a little bit about North Korea a little while ago. To come back to that subject, could you give me a sense of how Seoul is looking at developments on the peninsula today? Well, North Korea, since the failure of the Hanoi, has gone back to resu- rock testing the missiles. Today, they tested cruise missiles. Every day, it almost seems, and so many are looking at this with, oh, it's you know, yes, the upgrade, constant upgrading of their missiles technology is a technological aspect of it, but their desire to test these and show them, uh, demonstrate their cap- capability is a signal to the outside world, but also their domestic public, because the domestic public, because much of the resources are going into these missiles program, uh, means very little to the going to the public. So there is a need to show that this is all for a good cause, and, and all for a good cause because all these terrible enemies are threatening the North Korean uh, survival. So that's the public messaging that goes with. The recent public messaging is... South Korea is no longer our brethren. It's our enemy number one, and if they attempt anything, we will completely annihilate it. Very, very harsh rhetoric. Uh, And some see this as a sign that North Korea is ready to go to war. Uh, But if you look at their messaging closely, and if you look at what's happening, war preparation is not the right interpretation. I think the right interpretation, at least the, the, you know, you can't read one motive into but the biggest motive is again uh, coming to terms with the domestic population um, 
because what's happening, it seems that there's a lot of South Korean pop content going in through, yeah? and then from the regime's point of view, it's poisoning the minds of the younger people. And so they want to turn the South into an enemy. And so justifying the crackdown on the consumption of K-pop as something entirely anti-patriotic and criminal, you know, insidi insidious. <laughs> so, but also I think some longtime North Korea watchers are saying this is Kim Jong-un's attempt to make a clean break from the father and grandfather era where unification was a raison d'etre of the regime. One day we will. And he, I think, is now ready to establish his home brand of rule. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. That brand would be? Brand would be, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, what the slogan would be, but unification certainly doesn't seem to be that. And, of, and you see him grooming his successor. His young daughter is 10 only, and already he wants to put her on the podium. And there, again, the interpretation is because he himself had no, almost no time in waiting to be groomed. He wants to make sure that his successor, one of his children, it seems like his daughter has a sufficient period of grooming. Again, that's, that's one, one way this is being seen by many North, close North Korea watchers. Dr. Kang, some people say that North Korea has got 20 nuclear weapons. Some people think it could be even more than that. Mm -hmm. Surely that must be causing you sleepless nights in Seoul uh, for the people concerned. What is yeah. South Korea doing about it? Yeah, because this, you know, this period of no engagement has, has been a period of North Korea's acceleration of their, uh, their missiles capability. They haven't tested another nuclear device yet, but there's always the possibility. I think they're ready, but my sense is that China is probably keeping a damper on that. But the missiles, the delivery capability has hugely increased. And that's a concern not just for South Korea, but also globally. I think what concerns now we have in terms of the Russia-North Korea military cooperation. They both deny it still, but, you know, it seems to be a, a fact that North Korean munitions and missiles are making their way into the Ukraine battlefield. The question is, what is North Korea getting in return? Many experts think that it's, it's the kinds of military technology, the missiles technology that North Korea has not yet been able to develop on its own. And if that is the case, of course, it's a huge concern for not just us, but also on for Japan, for the United States, and for the rest of the world. Because they have the length. They already have the ICBM length capacity. What they don't have is the re-entry capacity. Mm. President Trump tried to talk to Kim Jong-un a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Your own country tried to talk to him. But there's been very little progress. What, mm. what do you think went wrong there? I think you know, I think it was it was only Mr. Trump who could take that in a presidential-led initiative to engage with the North. I think, but it, so it was in a re refreshing from the standpoint of South Korea. But because it was, you know, driven by the president himself, there was the what supported that at the working level was rather shallow. And I think Mr. Steve Biggin worked very hard 
to get something done. But there was very little technical underpinning. And then you also had the, the likes of detractors who didn't want any deal with North Korea in that team. So in the end, you didn't get any anything from... The John Boltons of the world, maybe? <laughs> yes, yes. I don't like naming names specifically in okay. these public discussions, but that's that was the case. And you, you could clearly see that why Hanoi then broke down. But I don't want to, therefore, discredit that whole process altogether. I think it was still meaningful that there was that highest level engagement between the United States and North Korea. And I should think that the next time there is another round of engagement, and Mr. Biden himself has said that he's you know, willing to meet with Kim Jong-un without any conditions. So that set a precedent that now makes it easier mm -hmm. in a way uh, to restart that level of engagement. But the ne when the next time comes, we have to make sure that the, the, the levels below the president are also on board, going in the same direction mm -hmm. and providing the substance. I mean, in other words, to say that, to make sure that the bureaucrats don't kill it. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I think, well, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you talk to the Chinese, they will tell you that the United States doesn't really want to deal with Kim. And in their interpretation, it's because it's important for the U.S. to keep North Korea as a static enemy because it gives them the excuse to place nuclear missiles around China. What do you say to that? Well, North Korea is not static, is it? It's continuing to threaten the global non-proliferation regime, uh, which the United States leads and which China and Russia are big part of. They're in the NF, but they're one of the P5s, the haves, vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world who should be not haves. And North Korea is a big challenge to that. And so unless they're willing to give up the integrity of the non-proliferation regime, I can't imagine the Americans would say, we're happy with North Korea going increasingly nuclear. And because I think there's all kinds of interpretations, way to look at this, but I would certainly, I would want America, I think of America as being responsible because it is in its own interest. Are you bothered? Are you worried? And do you take seriously the so-called relationship between North Korea and Putin's Russia? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a It's concern. for real? Yeah. It's the summit level, you know, show of friendship, and you have the foreign ministry coming back and forth. The defense ministry, I think, has also gone. And the, they still deny the weapons going to the North Korean, the shells going to. But then what? Are, what's all this show for? And again, it's a, it's a concern for Europe because of what it's doing in the Ukraine battlefield. It's a concern for us, Japan the United States, because what that means for North Korea's missiles capability. Mm -hmm. Has it come to a point where even the Chinese are bothered about it? I always think the Chinese are more tempered when it sees North Korea's capability. After all, it's sitting right across its own border, right? and the testing site is right on the border. Yes, China has, does not go along with any more sanctions resolution, even if North Korea provokes. 
But I think China would not feel very comfortable with North Korea that is increasingly nuclear and missiles capable. Do you think that someday South Korea and Japan may be forced to go nuclear as a method of deterrence mm-hmm. to meet this challenge that you have in from the North? Well, the public sentiment, every time there's a big provocation, there's... Uh, but we, I think we should stick to this uh, doc- policy of non-nuclearization. We've stuck to that policy for since 1992. We now rely on America's extended deterrence, uh, nuclear, America's nuclear umbrella. Uh, so not having nuclear weapons stationed on the Korean Peninsula, but relying on all other methods to make sure that we have that umbrella. And I think that's the way to go. I think the ones we start go nuclear, it's it not only causes a chain reaction here in the Middle East, but it would completely throw out the whole non-proliferation regime. But the pressure for a deterrent, is that increasing, would you say? Pressure for deterrent? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. And so there, the idea of extended deterrence is, is constantly being upgraded the kinds of measures that the extended deterrence means. Korea and the U.S. now have a nuclear consultation group, I think that's what it's called, to do, to discuss precisely these issues. What tool in that extension deterrence do you use? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moving away from North Korea for a bit, how are ties with Japan shaping? Well, I think the, the current government has decided to go full force ahead with improving ties with Japan. When we came to government, the situation was such that the the public was very negative about Japan because of this agreement reached during the previous government about the comfort women, which was you know unacceptable by the majority of the public. So and that was all four candidates going into the presidential campaign all said, this is terrible. We're going to break this when I come to power. We come to power and we realize we don't want to. It's an agreement. So it's an agreement is an agreement. So, but we don't want, we, but let's look at how this unacceptable agreement came to being in the first place. So we took a very thorough review of why that agreement came. I kept my Japanese counterpart informed every step of the way. And it was clear that without coming to terms with this, there will be no space for diplomacy with Japan. I think my Japanese counterpart understood why we needed to do that. So at the end of that, we said agreement is an agreement. We won't break it. And we won't ask to renegotiate. And this is not an item that can be solved through diplomatic renegotiation. It's an issue that has to be resolved through a heartfelt acceptance by the victims. And that can only happen when there is genuine, genuine apology from the Japanese side. And that's not something you can negotiate, right? So we said, if that comes from the Japanese side, that would be wonderful. But we are not going to negotiate. In the meanwhile, we will do everything we can as the South Korean government to support these women. And that's where that was going when the Supreme Court ruling on the forced laborers came out. Much more difficult because you cannot go against, as government, you cannot go against the Supreme Court of your highest court. And that was much more difficult. And and, the rest of our term was trying to find a way out of this with Japan, which was very unhappy with this 
So that's where my term ended. And I think the previous government ended there. The new government comes in and says, we're just going to, you know, the, the um, uh, solution has to be to, we'll take, we'll, we'll take care of it. We'll, we won't force the Japanese companies that were ordered by our Supreme Court to pay reparations to the victims. We say, we're not going to go to the companies. The South Korean government is going to find a way to pay back the reparations to the victims who the court order said deserved reparations. When I was in South Korea last time and I visited the Comfort Women, there were about 27 of them left. Today, I assume there are probably about a dozen left. When they move on, as, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. as they will someday, do you think it'll be easier to f- put this behind, behind it, this issue, for the two of you? I think it's, it's, yeah, it, it really matters when you have victims still alive wanting their dignity, okay? Once, they're, once that live voice is out of the way, will it make things easier? I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Japan is increasing its military spending, and it's now said it's going to be an arms exporter. I mean, it's a tweaking policy to start exporting arms. How is that being viewed in Seoul? I think South Korea's view always has been Japan being very committed to its peaceful constitution. And I think, but I wouldn't know anything about the, the current discussions between the two governments on this. Mm-hmm. So I, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to comment on that. Well, it does uh, add an extra measure of competition between the two of you because you are exporting to the Philippines and to Ukraine and, and uh, even to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, you know, be, we, be, uh, this is one of the silver linings of having to live with a, with, a, with, a, with a threat to the north that you always keep make sure that you have a strong military, you have a strong defense sector, you have strong defense industry, and now it's paying, it's paying bank back all the investments. I don't know. I don't know enough about the Japanese defense industry to see where the competition is, where it isn't. But I did see one on YouTube where they compared the artillery shells South Korean made by a United States going into Ukraine <laughs> to Japanese shells bought by the UK and the, how the two measured. Well, you have submarines as well. Uh, I want to ask you a personal question. You know, mo- most of your predecessors in, uh, as foreign minister, they were either specialists in U.S.-Korea relations mm-hmm. or in North Korea-South Korea relations, mm-hmm. which your expertise was in multilateral mm-hmm. diplomacy. How did that play into your role as foreign minister? Well, I always say to my junior colleagues in the foreign ministry, go to a multilateral setting. See the world, you know, whether it's New York, whether it's in Geneva, Vietnam, see the world. They do, they have different agendas. In New York, it's mostly political. In Geneva, it's most human rights and specialized agencies. In Nairobi, it's environment. And, and in Vienna, it's crime, IAEA. But you look at the world through a thematic prism, but you do deal with the whole world. And you do, you look at, other diplomats, you understand a particular country's position from the global perspective. So you understand, you see the country's location in the global scheme of things in a multilateral setting. And with that, then you go to a bilateral station, you understand the country much more 
in depth and much more globally. So I think having been in the United, in the, the UN for, for Geneva at a time when the North Korean uh, nuclear testing was, you know, at its height and seeing how the Security Council reacted, how, how the key countries reacted, that gives you a, a perspective that you cannot get when you're only dealing with at a bi- bilateral level. So I would think I walked in there with a much more <laughs> enriched perspective in looking at the United States and China and then Japan and, and the Russia and the others. So. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but when you were in office, you had a most unconventional American president coming in. Yes. How did you navigate that relationship? I mean, you had secretaries of state being changed midterm. You had different secretaries moving. How do you negotiate that? Could you give me one or two examples where you really had to put your thinking cap on and uh... well i think you know you don't have a choice what do you do you have to you have to deal with with the counterpart as you're given and i think but of course my counterpart was initially mr tillerson and then mr um, pompeo i you know very different i think mr tillerson was more more attuned the global expectations about the United States, which is why he got sacked. Mr. Pompeo, I think, was much more closer to President Trump's own view of the world. But I think he was he was a honest, straight talker. So we had our differences, we had our disagreements, but I, I got along with him <laughs> quite well. <laughs> See, yeah. Interesting. You know, your government, the Moon government, came into office, you know, after holding candle candlelight rallies and all that, and talking about transparency and a healthier democracy and so forth. Do you see a tendency for democracies to be backsliding? Is there democratic backsliding in Asia today? Does that bother you? We have so many elections. And you you look at the the economics intelligence unit of what to expect from these elections is that the incumbencies have an upper hand because they've done quite well on the economic front, and so the voting public likes that. Uh, but they also, many of them, have undermined the institutional guarantees of balance, checks and balances, and democratic governance through the weakening of the courts, you know, the, the press freedom, and so on and so forth. So incumbency will win, and that may be good for businesses because there's continuity and predictability, but that in the long run, this undermines democratic governance, and that can, in the long run, be uh, makes for a very difficult business environment. I have a couple of last questions, Dr. Kang. I was looking at your Asia Society's 16 centers worldwide. Yes. And two things stood out for me. You, you do have an office in Hong Kong, and a fairly yes. substantial one. Yes. There's nothing on the mainland. Yes. Why is that so? And do you intend to do something about it? I asked the same question. I asked, <laughs> but I see that these centers are not. It does not. It's not somebody sits in New York and says, "Well, we're going to think where would we want centers." It's more organic, homegrown. There is an interest at the ground level. There is funding support, and asks um, headquarters, "Can we use Asia Society's banner to?" promote, to do things to promote understanding about Asia and that's how these centers came about. Clearly, that idea didn't come up with the people in 
Beijing, but I do know that Beijing is a very frequent places of visit for many key Asia society trustees and staff. Um, do we want to establish a center there? We'll have to see. Mm-hmm. The other thing that puzzles me is that you don't have any presence in a very important region called West Asia. Most people call it the Middle East, and that uh-huh. sort of brings it into a different consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say Middle East, but actually. The Middle East is West Asia. Mm-hmm. And in so much of what goes on in the rest of Asia, mm-hmm. they never talk about West Asia as a part of Asia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a certain gap that needs to be bridged? You know, as I told you, we don't have, we don't seem to have a clear definition of what do we mean by Asia when we say Asia society. And perhaps it's time that we came to clearer terms of our understanding about this. But you're right, we don't have presence in West Asia. You know, we don't have presence in Central Asia, which is clearly Asia by any account. But this reflects the nature of the organization, which has been very sporadic, spontaneous in its growth. We call it the franchise model. I now come to realize this is the nature of the beast, and this is also its strengths, the diversity. So I don't want to kill it, but I certainly want to bring in better, much more coordination to it. So... Yeah, but getting back to your question, do we want, you know, more steady engagement with the West Asia? You know, I would have to, I would have to call, I would have to think this through together with the board and and key staff. Dr. Kang, thank you for coming and speaking of Asia. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was, I I hope it was useful. (laughs) It was most useful. Thank you so much. I hope to come back and be as a fully established Asia Society President and have another conversation. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast show notes below. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.